God, faithful author of the scriptures, reliable witness, pledge of our inheritance waiting for us in heaven, revealer to us of Jesus Christ, applier of the salvation of God the Father to our hearts, enlightener of our minds, renewer of our wills, come afresh, illumine. Take these hearts of ours to get burdened with a world of care and hold them up before the resurrection of Jesus Christ, before life everlasting. Encourage our hearts today. Enlighten our minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why did Luke write Luke? Why take the time to do it? Now, I know I just read a scripture for us. I read the end of Luke. It is always appropriate when you read the end to go back, read the beginning again. Let me read the first four verses to remind us of why Luke writes this for us. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke wants his friend Theophilus, his disciple, his pupil, his student, to have certainty that's why he writes this book. Why would he want that? Why would he want him to have certainty? The answer to why he wants him to have certainty is found in our text today. He wants him to have certainty, namely because it seems too good to be true. And I ask us, as we reflect now on the end of the gospel, is that so for us. Is it for us so remarkable, so wonderful, so magnificent, so incredible? Is it such good, such great, such fantastic news that for us the gospel flits right on the edge of believability, of credibility? We don't believe in fairy tales. We may have enjoyed fairy tales, reading them to our kids or reading them ourselves as we grew up, but we don't believe in them. You don't really believe that somebody from Publishers Clearinghouse is waiting at your home right now with a great big check for you. You don't really believe the emails that come into your computer that are written from somebody somewhere who would like to make a deposit in your account because they can't get their funds out of whatever bank where they are, they just need a partner. Yes, you don't believe those, right? I don't believe that I'm going to grow up and be the President of the United States, nor a professional baseball player, nor a professional basketball or soccer player. I don't believe I'm going to be a movie star. I don't believe that I'm going to be Jacques Cousteau though that was my most realistic hope when I was a kid, that I would grow up and be Jacques Cousteau. There are countless things, right? There are countless fanciful things in this world which we discount as just that, 
idle fancy. We know they're fantasies. We know they're make-believe. And so we dismiss them. We, we may enjoy thinking about them sometimes, but we don't put any trust in them. But if this gospel is true, if this, you can say chapter, if this passage of Scripture is true, then it changes everything. Because it is literally, and, and, and think about this later, it is literally better than anything we can possibly imagine. If all of these promises that Jesus Christ has made of life now, abundant, joyful, the giving of the Spirit as a down payment for life eternal in the presence of God with blessings innumerable, all of the universe, all of the glories of God given to us without sin forever. If that's true, I can't think of anything better. You can't think of anything better. It's almost too good to be true. And so there they are. A collection of the disciples. And collection of the disciples, not just uh, the 11. Of course, Thomas isn't there at this particular time. So probably at least 10 of the disciples. And then the women, some of the women who were there and some of these other disciples who were part of the greater company who followed Jesus are in this room talking about the events of the day. And as we read in the Gospel of John, not in the Gospel of Luke, but in the Gospel of John, they are in this room with the door locked for fear of the Jews. They're afraid that what happened to Jesus may spread. It may happen to them as well. And so there they are. Priceless, priceless reactions are given to us by Luke as Jesus appears in their midst. Behold then the pillars of the church described as follows, startled, frightened, thought they were seeing a ghost. Man, that guy just appeared out of nowhere. Troubled, doubting, disbelieving for joy, and marveling. What are we looking at? What is happening? How can this be? May that their reactions minister to us, for all of us at various times in our lives have experienced this full range of emotions, these, this full range of thoughts as it relates to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of us have wondered, all of us have been afraid, all of us have thought to ourselves, this cannot be true. Don't despair if you've thought that. Do not be surprised that you think that way. You're not the only one who's ever thought that way. You're actually in a great company of people who have seen Jesus Christ risen from the dead and who went, this can't be happening. There's no way that this can be true. Or, for that matter, people who throughout the history of the church, Old Testament, New Testament, have looked at these things and said, how can this be? Whether you're Abraham, Sarah, or anyone who came after them, how can this be? Whether you're Mary or somebody else, how can it be? Whether you're Zechariah, how can this be? 
Do not think that you are alone when you look at the gospel of Jesus Christ and you sometimes think, is this too good to be true? Am I part of or party to some great historic hoax, some great collection of wishful thinking that has somehow snowballed throughout the millennia to bring us up to this point right here where we're just caught up in the snowball of people wishfully hoping and thinking that maybe somebody rose from the dead somewhere and there's life to come after this. Part of wishful thinking that Jesus of Nazareth actually rose from the dead. Do not panic when you think or feel that way. But at the same time, don't stay there. Don't stay in that place. Acknowledge your doubts, okay? If you've got them, that's fine. Acknowledge the doubts and then consider. And then reflect on these things. Consider the proofs. Consider the accounts. Because Luke doesn't want Theophilus and he certainly, by implication, then doesn't want us, whoever would read his words beyond Theophilus, to be consumed by doubts. He doesn't want us to stop in that place. Rather, he wants us to be buttressed in certainty. That's what he's looking to do for his friend. Buttress him up, shore up the sides so that he can be certain of the things that he has heard. And Jesus wants the exact same thing for those who will follow him and thus his appearance to all of his followers in this room. They, and then we, through the writing of Luke, are presented with evidences for the reality of the resurrection. And so, very simply, let's walk through. What's the evidence? Lay it out. What's the case for the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The first piece of evidence is the most obvious. It is physicality. It is the very presence of Jesus in their midst. He's with them. He is not a ghost. And he takes pains to let them know, I'm not a ghost. I get it. I know what you're thinking. You think I'm a ghost. I'm not a ghost. Take a look. Use your eyes, and if you don't trust your eyes because your eyes you think might see a ghost, then trust your hands. Go ahead. Reach out and touch me. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. See the marks. Reach out and touch me. I ask you a question. Do ghosts have flesh and bones? That's what Jesus says. You're going to be able to put your hands on me. You're going to be able to feel my knuckles. You're going to be able to feel my arm bones and the flesh that is around them. I am not a ghost. My physicality is evidence for you of the reality of that which I have just accomplished. Jesus is allowing them, inviting them, commanding them to deal with their doubts. Commanding them to deal with exactly what troubles them. Use your God-given senses. This is like a proto-scientific experiment. Go ahead, test it. 
Here's the hypothesis. Jesus rose from the dead in bodily form. Test it. Use your eyes. Use your hands. See if it's true. See if it's not true. He goes so far as to ask, and I know I've said this before, probably in the context of Easter sermons on this passage, I think what is one of the most wonderful and simple questions in the whole Bible in the midst of this. It seems to us kind of, you think, whoa, that's out of place. Do you have anything here to eat? Do you have anything here to eat? Of all of the ways that Jesus could have manifested for them the veracity of his resurrection, the truthfulness of it, it could have been, think about this, it could have been a transfiguration moment, right? He could have done the transfiguration thing right there. Boom. On top of the mountain, everybody's seeing everything. Now we're going to get to the ascension at the end of this passage, and it's a glorious and it's a wonderful thing, as is the transfiguration. By the way, I'm going to run out of superlatives in this sermon, but that's okay, because if there's ever a place for superlatives, it's at the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. But in any case, he could have done something like that, something absolutely, positively amazing, and instead he uses the most ordinary thing for the most extraordinary demonstration. Instead of transfiguration, he uses fish. Now, they don't taste Jesus, of course, but it's the, it's the, the, the taste sense that's employed here. It's the watch, watch me, I'm a body. I eat just like I always ate with you. You've seen me eat fish with you how many times? Had fish the other night. Broiled fish is the, the, the witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, physicality. Second is speech. Jesus is not silently in their midst. He is not a phantasm, uh, not a figment of their imagination, not a hallucination that they're just kind of all seeing, quivering there, but isn't really saying anything. Jesus is actually talking with them, and the words that he says are words that I've already said and that are familiar to us. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look, see, touch, have any fish? These are all words. But perhaps none are so great, are so precious to us, as those first words that come from his mouth, peace to you. Zechariah, when he closed his song at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, closed with this line, he will guide our feet in the way of peace. Angels sang of peace on earth among men with whom he is well pleased. The Old Testament hoped for peace. Isaiah 53 talks about him being crushed the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Jesus, before his death, passage on your front of your bulletin if you want to look at it, peace I leave with you. And so when the resurrected Jesus comes into your midst and speaks these words, they are not just a normal everyday greeting. When that one comes in your midst and says peace to you, Something mighty has happened. The warfare between God and men has come to a conclusion. The penalty has been levied upon Jesus, paid in full. Peace is now being distributed fully, abundantly. What great words 
to those who had so recently deserted him. Who so recently, instead of being stalwarts, instead of standing firm in the faith, talked about that in Sunday school, instead of those things, they'd run, they'd scattered, they'd stood off at a distance rather than being pillars of the faith. Peace to you. Speech. By implication, Jesus is okay. Use your ears. Use your eyes. Use your, use your sense of touch. I'm tasting the fish for you. Use your ears. By the way, there's nothing in here about smell. But, uh, but if I could dovetail this with the past couple sermons, I don't smell like decay. I smell like a living person in your midst. Third piece of evidence, part of the testimony, is, of course, then the unfolding, the explanation of Scripture. And this is very similar to what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus, just in the section before this. He unfolds, he unpacks the Scriptures for all of them who were there. Who knows how long that was, you know, over several days, several hours. I was struck this morning... Uh, as we were singing our first Christmas hymn uh, of, of Advent, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, this is like the lesson, if you want to look back on it later, like the lesson that Jesus gave to them. Come, Emmanuel, ideas from Isaiah. The next verse, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai is height. Okay, we're back in Exodus there. Next one, come, thou rod of Jesse. Promises made to David in that verse, and then the key of David in verse 5. O come thou dayspring, come from on high. That's verse 4. That's Malachi. That's what Jesus does in this biblical theology lesson for all of these disciples who are gathered here. He walks them through the Scriptures and tells them, again, of the necessity, of the must, that these things had to take place. Reason it out. Logic it out. You think this has been a mistake? You think this has been an exception, the way things happen? Let me show you, give you evidence that this is exactly what should have happened. I'm going to lay the case out for you from the beginning all the way through the last several thousand years of history to explain to you exactly why we're in this room right now with me in your presence after my death. Let me explain it to you from Scripture. It's a proof. It's an invitation to them, and it's also, it's, it's an invitation to them to be able to use their mind. It's likewise a granting of the ability to use their minds. So, verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Don't just look. Don't just touch. If, if you don't trust your senses, engage your mind. Think it through. Work it through. The faith isn't mindless. In fact, it is the opposite. I need the full engagement of your mind. Remember last week, uh, well, earlier in the day, when he was with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, the emphasis 
wasn't so much on their minds, although that was there. The emphasis, though, was on their hearts. Their hearts were sad, and then their hearts were burning. Here, the emphasis turns to the mind. You don't set it aside to believe. You engage it fully. You weigh, you consider, you think about, are these things true or are they not? You look at the evidence, you make the conclusion. Jesus enables them to use their minds. Having said that, we don't want to elevate any of these things as definitive in and of themselves, neither the senses, the, the ears, the eyes, or the mind, because none of them work well enough to figure out this equation in and of themselves. They require something else, and then that, then, is what Jesus is talking about in verse 49. And behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father. I'm sending you that promise. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. It is the Spirit of God, and make no mistake, this is what Jesus is talking about here, the Spirit of God who is being sent to the people, who will illumine the hearts and the minds. That's his arena. He illumines hearts and minds for the wide and broad distribution of the gospel. It is the Spirit of God who is going to enable belief beyond how many were in the room? I don't know how many were in the room. Let's say 25. I don't know. Somebody's probably figured that out. I don't know. 25 people in the room. Beyond the 25 people who were in this room, it is the Spirit of God who allow them who will allow them and enable them to believe. They who were not there, it was hard enough for them to believe, and they were looking at it, him. But the Spirit of God is going to enable a far broader embracing of these things as they witness to the truth of them, to the veracity of them. And as they, as the Spirit of God, and this is the transition point, of course, empowers them for mission, to be witnesses. And so essentially, what Jesus says to them, what he says to us becomes as mission, if you find this to be true, not a fairy tale, not false, not a fantasy, then for Jesus' sake, for the sake of the love you have for your friends, for your family, for the nations of the world, for God's sake, for goodness sake, with a capital G, proclaim it. Go from doubters to emissaries. Go from recipients to givers. Go from being fearful to being courageous. They're in a room with a locked door. Or they're on a mountain looking at Jesus ascending up into heaven. Or they're in Jerusalem itself. Think of it this way. What Jesus is saying is, listen, this is a no parking zone. This is a no loitering place, no standing about Isaiah 52, we read it earlier. Depart, depart, go out from there. That's what Jesus is saying. You're in a locked room. 
That's the very opposite of what the church should be. But for now, that's the start. You're in a locked room. Get out of the locked room. Go. Go. Grow in the Spirit. Go by the Spirit. That is the promise of the Father. Remember, do you remember back in Luke chapter 11? Luke chapter 11 was where Jesus instructed his disciples in prayer, and he gave them the Lord's Prayer. And then he gave them the instructions about how even earthly fathers can answer the requests of their children. And he concludes saying this, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's the promise of the father. The promise of the father is the giving of, sorry, the giving of himself, the giving of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Most High overshadowed Mary, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Well, the power from on high, disciples, wait for it, because when he comes, you will conceive, and you will give birth as well to the new covenant church. That'll be the seed that comes forth out of you. Same process for Mary that brought forth Jesus will be the process, the power from on high, the Spirit of God will come upon you, and you will preach, and you will witness. You will do good in my name, and people will see it and believe, believe it or not. We thus conclude the Gospel of Luke. We began with Jesus coming down. He came down from heaven to earth, and we end with Jesus going up from earth to heaven. A man, a human being, now in the presence of God. And we read it earlier, I won't repeat it, from the Heidelberg Catechism. In the ascension, Jesus takes his place at the right hand of God. He had been there before as the glorious Son of God, yet not incarnate. Now, he is there as the God-man, united forever. Our flesh in heaven and the Spirit poured out together being the pledge, the security of our inheritance, of the fact that we are going to be able to go in that place where no flesh ought go, except for perfected flesh, where no person can stand, except for the one. And now we all can stand in him in that place. And as he goes, he blesses. William Hendrickson notes, blessing is much more than well-wishing, it's not just a nice way to end the gospel or a nice way to end a worship service. Bless you. See you later. Rather, it is an effective impartation of welfare, of peace, and of power. And that's why our service ends with it. That's why the hands are raised. You go out in the name of Jesus Christ with his welfare, with his peace, with his power. To those shepherds who sat in darkness in the shadow of death at the beginning of the gospel, 
angels brought news of, and I don't do this often, megas charas, great joy, mega joy, great joy. And as they witness the ascension of Jesus Christ, as they reflect on the promises that have been made to them, as they go back to Jerusalem, they go back with exactly the same words. Great joy. Great joy as they reflect on these things. The birth, the life, the suffering, the teaching, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. That is all given birth to a small community of joyful worshipers. That's what it did. A handful. It is almost too good to be true, but you can be certain of it, my dear Theophilus. And guess what? It gets even more amazing. It gets even more amazing because it spreads around the whole world. But Luke says, I get ahead of myself. That's the subject for volume two. We'll not go there now. For now, be certain, be blessed, and rejoice. Earlier in the gospel, Jesus said these words. Do not fear. Only believe. Let's pray.